the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Browker practitioners cast a hex on state governments that want to credit their schools of magic, forgetting that they've actually hidden those schools in pocket universes and nobody can find them. The future of humanity rests on a bevy of Davids. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we talk with D.J. Butler about Witchy Kingdom, the last entry in the Witchy Wars Flintlock Fantasy Adventure Series. It's a great book set in a magically changed North American past, very full of extremely cool 18th and 19th century magical lore, and possessed of a winning, tough-minded heroine who is trying to survive a siege on the seat of empire, Cahokia. Plus, we continue with a complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. Hey, the Bain September contest is coming up, and it's a two-book giveaway extravaganza. Hey, this is a pretty easy one, too. You don't have to write something funny or insightful. No, no, no. You just have to be lucky. And hey, you're listening to this, so we already know you're lucky, right? The Future of Humanity and a Bevy of Davids. This month, we've got two new anthologies coming out. The first, Stellaris, People of the Stars, explores what humanity's future might look like once we venture into space and adapt ourselves to that environment. The second, The Chronicles of Davids, collects works from 19 Davids of Distinction in the field of science fiction and fantasy, and I think you might know who some of them are. To celebrate these two collections this month, we're giving away copies of both signed by their respective editors. To enter to win, simply send an email with your name to contest at Bain.com by September 20th. Pretty easy, huh? Find out more at the Bain.com front page or by signing up for our bi-monthly newsletter, which will get you all the news of new releases, contests, and more. You can also do that right there on the left-hand side of the main page at Bain.com. So enter the contest and get the newsletter, then sit back and wait for the mana to rain down. I want to welcome DJ Butler to the podcast. Hello, Dave. How's it going? Hey, Tony. I'm uh, thrilled to be here. How are you? I'm doing fine. I understand you're in your in deep in your uh, basement bunker in uh, in Utah. That's correct. Uh, in in the historic bunker where Seven Habits of Highly Effective People were written, and where now I write uh, fantasy novels, uh, pacing back and forth, thinking deep thoughts. Very cool. Very cool. Well, DJ Butler Dave grew up in swamps, deserts, and mountains. After messing around for years with the practice of law, he finally got serious and turned to his lifelong passion of storytelling. He now writes adventure stories for readers of all ages, plays guitar, and spends as much time as he can with his family. He's the author of several books from Wordfire Press and from Bain, Witchy Eye and Witchy Winter. Um, now at booksellers everywhere is a new entry in that Witchy Wars series. That book is called Witchy Kingdom by D.J. Butler. We are, as we begin, we're in Cahokia, um, this is not the Cahokia we know as being in East St. Louis in a state park. Um, what, where are we? What's going on at, 
And can you sort of bring us up to date and set the set the world of Witchy Kingdom? Yeah, so Cahokia is the uh, chief of the seven mound builder kingdoms of the Ohio. And uh, as we open, it is, uh, it's under siege. Uh, and it has uh, political uncertainty within its walls, as well as uh, military threat without. Uh, this is uh, the seven uh, mound builder kingdoms are uh, an ancient alliance of people that came from a, a lost world, uh, a sunken, a sunken land in the old world, uh, and um, in ages past. And uh, as the empire of the new world sort of rose up next to them, they joined it. But they've always been a little bit different, uh, a little bit, a little bit alien. They've got a, a separate history and a separate. Um, uh, when this is sort of the, some of the debate in the book. Uh, their own, their own goddess that separates them from uh, the other peoples of the empire. So what's happened is book three opens is our our protagonist, Sarah, uh, who grew up thinking she was Sarah Calhoun and learned uh, as a teenager that she's the daughter of uh, Curious Eleutherius, uh, former king uh, of Cahokia, uh, has arrived uh, in, in book two. Um, and as book three opens, she has made a splash and attracted a lot of following, but she has not yet achieved uh, what she came to accomplish, which is, uh, at least in part, which is to uh, recover her father's throne. So uh, some of her rivals, uh, former rivals, have lined up with her. Others have not. Um, and she learns that she also she has other uh, internal enemies she didn't know, people who... Uh, um, who actually see her people's ancient goddess as a uh, as a demon and a curse. Uh, and meanwhile, with that, we've got the besieging armies on the one side of the emperor, uh, Thomas Penn, um, and on the other side, uh, the ancient uh, uh, king of the Mississippi and Ohio River system, the Heron King, has, uh, has turned to his wrathful, destructive face of Simon's sword, uh, and the beast kind, the subjects of Simon's sword, are rampaging on the uh, on the western banks, and so Cahokia and its people are are divided within and outside, uh, surrounded. As the book opens, yeah, and the I mean, for anybody that I, you may have just mentioned it, uh, but Cahokia is uh, where is is where East St. Louis is, and and geographically. But there's no St. Louis. This is a world where magic works. Uh, it's America that has that is. It's a North America that's that's divided up into into sectional area. Explain the the world a little bit more, maybe, um, as far as the the magic systems and such. The uh, part of the original idea for the stories was uh, when I was first kicking the stories around the plot, I actually thought I might set it in the Holy Roman Empire, uh, in that kind of early modern uh, Brothers Grimm-like setting where you can have, you know, a bishop and a prince and an alderman, right, all interacting, uh, and you have you have knights who carry guns. Um, and uh, and, and uh, at some point uh, in the creative process, I just transferred that idea to uh, an 1815 alternate America. So it's America. They don't use the name America. Uh, the the land, uh, the empire is organized as an elective empire. So there's an emperor who uh, is the, who happens to be. He doesn't happen to be. He 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 uh, he, 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 you know, he campaigned for it. He 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 got to be 
um, the empire uh, emperor, uh, in part by virtue of his great wealth, which is uh, the Penn landholder Thomas Penn. So, uh, but the the powers uh, of various powers of the empire send uh, electors to choose uh, and also to restrain uh, the emperor. So it's got a it's got a constitution that's kind of one part U.S. constitution, one part uh, early modern uh, Germany and Austria. Um, so you've got uh, in, uh, you've got mostly ethnicities and uh, kind of historical groups that you recognize from reading U.S. history. Um, uh, so you've got uh, people like the Iroquois, the Haudenosaunee, are part of the empire, and some of the Algonquian peoples uh, send electors. Some of them are, in, are, are outside, uh, some of them are in. Um, and, uh, and then you've got uh, some straight-up fantasy. Uh, well, so then you have people who... Uh, historically, we're here, but who are here in the story in a different sort of guise, uh, the Igbo and the Bantu powers of the uh, Gulf Coast area. Uh, and then you've got some straight-up fantasy people like the uh, like the Cahokians, who are sort of an, an analog of, for elves. Um, and they call themselves firstborn? They do. That's a polite way to talk about them. And there are various slurs. They get called uh, snake-born or fae, or uh, or eldritch, or serpent-born. Um, but firstborn is the polite way, or maybe maybe Ophidians is a reasonably polite way to talk about them. And that's a way to identify them with uh, with their goddess, who um, is, you know, many of the people in the setting use a biblical paradigm to talk about their setting and about their origins, uh, and uh, and there's and there's that's true for the uh, for the Cahokians for the uh, the mound builders as well. Um, that what they understand is that their goddess is uh, is the first wife of Adam, uh, and that they are descended from her. And that she one of the ways she manifests herself in the world, or one of her great symbols is uh, as a, in serpent form. Yeah, and the the and that's why the throne of um... Of Koki is called the the Serpent Throne, right? I believe it is. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. And there's a, um, you know, the uh, if you go back and read, um, uh, as one does, right? As one does. If you go back and read Egyptian hieroglyphs, as DJ Butler does, yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, sure, sure. Many of our listeners, Tony, are, are Egyptologists. So, uh, so the goddess Isis. Okay, the, the hieroglyphs that, that are used to write the name of the goddess Isis include a stylized picture of a throne. And the goddess Isis is understood to be uh, equivalent to the throne of the pharaoh. Uh, and so that's a, and, and so yes, the serpent throne depicted on the, on the cover of book three, and no one ever says this in any of the books, so I'm not just giving away a spoiler here, I'm giving away secret interpretive keys. Um, the, the throne is the goddess, um, is the person who is sitting on it, right? These are symbols that, that are not, that are not uh, rationally dissectable. They're all, they're, they're equivalents in, in, in myth language. Uh, so, yes, that's why the throne is a big uh, seven-headed serpent. The, the maps are clearly maps of America in the book, and, you know, it, we're not exactly spoiling too much by, by giving a little bit of background here. So, um, and it's and it's just damn cool 
<laughs> so I want to talk about it. So, uh, and, and the religions are, some are, there's Christianity, but there's also, I mean, there's, there's paganism. There's a lot of sort of uh, 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 alchemist sort of things, like the Masonic stuff is real and works um, and stuff like that. And there's all kind of this, this sort of feeling of 19th century mysticism that, that uh, or even before that you've disabused everything with. Yeah, I've tried to, um, yeah, this is like a soapbox I get up on a lot. Uh, one day it will get me into trouble, but, but I, I, uh, you know, I think, I think that, uh, fantasy literature the last 20 years or so has made two, um, big, um, mistakes, um, two, two big, uh, uh, bad moves. Uh, and I think, uh, one of them is uh, grimdark because that's just sophomoric nihilist nonsense. Um, you know, silly people saying, "Well, uh, there is no God. There's no meaning in life. You want to get laid, right?" That's that's grimdark. And then the uh, but the other is uh, so-called magic systems. Every young fantasy writer you talk to thinks they have to design a design a magic system, and they call them hard magic systems, and they are complete and utter nonsense. Um, they don't they don't resonate um, because they don't look or behave like people have thought magic behaves in the real world. They're they're based on you take some artificial uh, so, some object that's you know got, that's multivalent that has a few aspects like say the color spectrum. You go okay, there are seven colors. Okay, there are seven kinds of magic. If I'm touching color X, I can do Y thing, and it's complete balderdash. Uh, and it makes a mockery of the roots of fantasy, which are deeply uh, Jungian and um, and spiritual. And, and fantasy is in its root the the what if literature of the human soul. Uh, and I think that a lot of its power comes from the fact that uh, that fairy tale magic and real world magic um, are not systematic, but they're they're archetypal and they they touch. Uh, the human consciousness. And so when you get rid of that stuff, you're just writing adventure stories in which people, if they, if they consume one metal, can fly. But if they consume a different one, they can shoot fire out their eyes, right? It's nonsense. So, so witchy eye doesn't do that. Um, instead, I tried very hard. Uh, th there are some characters who practice magic on a kind of a theoretical level. Um, sort of Fraserian uh, concepts of uh, similarity and contagion, but most of them don't. Most magic is practiced in in paradigms that are as close to real world as I can get them. So they are uh, voodoo hungans, or they are German brauchers, or they are, uh, or they use. Um, and I've assigned this to. To, to Memphis, I call this Memphite magic, but it's really uh, sort of Hellenistic uh, spellbooks, Greco-Roman, um, uh, Neoplatonic uh, kind of magic. Uh, and yeah, and in along with that, I've got um, absolutely sort of a, a, a lot of kind of Masonic stuff. I mean, 1815, the real world was like the height of the Masonic craze, right? All the founders were Masons, all the early presidents, everybody was Mason. Um, I am not a Mason, if you're wondering. 
so uh, the uh, so so that's a that's a line that runs through that that is important to the story sometimes and culturally, but also yeah, it connects to it connects to the magical practice of some of the characters. Um, and uh, and similar, so that's the magic side and the religion side. Similarly, you know, I've tried to have real world because really it's the same point. Magic religion is it's, they're they're very close, and, and I've tried to have real world religion. And so you've got Christians, including uh, this is a setting in which the Pope, the Borgia Pope, turned Turk, um, and uh, and and you know centuries in the past. So one consequence of that is that uh, is that there is no Catholicism. There is also no uh, Protestant Reformation. You have a sort of a conciliar model for Christianity, like you would find it if you if you go read like Geoffrey of Monmouth of the, the Venerable Bede. You know they're not asking the Pope for everything. They they discuss. The bishops get together and they try and figure out what should we do. Um, so, but there is a Protestant-like movement, uh, a, a new new light Christianity, and there are new light characters. Um, and there are characters who are who are voodoo and even the Cahokian religion, which is uh, which is obviously made up, is deeply rooted as, as deeply as I can in things like ancient Egypt and biblical texts to try to make it feel like it's real, like this is the kind of thing a human society might do, like it would, like this would have meaning for people if they were doing it, rather than just, oh, I am Trogdor, Lord of Dwarves, and if you touch the stone, you will be stronger. Yeah. So I love writing this stuff. And there are, it's been great to find readers. Yeah, and, and out in the West, there are these magical beings that are uh, beast people, um, they're kind of and they have their own systems and cultures and religions that that sort of feels uh, very much union uh, tarot kind of uh, feel to to the way that they it's bird headed men and and fox people and things like that and it and it's got some Arthurian myth it seems like and there are some some Middle Ages kind of stuff with Heron King and uh, Peter Plowshare. Yeah, yeah. Part of the part of the root of the story. Um, one of the things that that I, one of the ingredients I sort of layered in at the very beginning when I was trying to figure out what I was writing, was um, I think it was a National Geographic article, and I was reading uh, about the waterways of the U.S. and, I, and there's a map. And I looked at it and I realized for the first time. Um, what's prob- probably someone told me this in like ninth grade geography and I forgot or never sort of thought about what that really meant. But most of the continental United States from basically from the Rocky Mountains over the, to the Appalach- Appalachians is one giant drainage bowl. It's, it's, it's really one river system, the whole thing. And it's an, an enormous, one of the biggest rivers in the world might be the biggest. I don't know. Really the Ohio and the Mississippi river are one giant river. Um, and they empty most of the continent. And uh, and as I was looking at that, I thought, well, what kind of... Uh, I think I was reading Egyptian stuff at the time and about the Nile and the different gods of the Nile. Uh, and I thought, you know, if this was a... Uh, if this was... If this river had a god, what would the god look like? And so, so yeah, Simon Sword and Peter Plowshare. And, the, you know, the name is, again... This is the name that the 
people descended from Europeans who are part of the empires, people who use a Christian paradigm, a, a biblical paradigm to talk about things. This is the name they've applied, right? So you've got sort of Simon Peter and, and uh, you know, sword plowshare kind of dualism there. Um, but it's a, it's a father-son dyad like Horus Osiris, um, uh, except they replace each other in succession. It's the same being living through a, a series of fathers and sons, and, and Peter Plowshare presides over great periods of uh, benevolence. Uh, it's Peter Plowshare whose magics prevent the diseases of the European immigrants from killing all of the uh, people who preceded them. So we don't have that big die-off in, in the witchy war stories, and so we have a lot more. Shawnee and Fox and Comanche and Algonquin to stuff around. Um, it's his magics that, um, or it's, it's his lore that taught people to uh, the three sisters agriculture, uh, beans and corns and squash, and right. So it's a great sort of benevolent figure giving to all those who come to the to the, to his immense valley. Uh, but then the son, Simon Sword, uh, is violent, vengeful, uh, destructor, a destroyer, a bringer of. Uh, of cosmic change, and um, so his his land uh, is this ambiguous uh, place that is both uh, fertile, uh, but also produces monsters and abominations, uh, and and that's one thing you see in in the beast kind who um, uh, who are sort of semi-human or humanish, but they have beast parts. Uh, and they're they're clearly capable of elevation because some of them do uh, rise, uh, but many of them are just savage uh, and bestial and uh, berserkers. And there's one of the sort of notes that book three ends on is Sarah's uncertainty about her own goddesses and her own people's connection with this um, very fertile but also sort of grotesque and dangerous kind of Eden. Yeah. Well, some of the some of them are on Sarah's side. Um, yeah. From the end of book one, right? So, so <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, so so from the end of book one, uh, one of the it wasn't spoilers left, right and center here. Uh, book one, um, one of the elements that comes out of the resolution of the climax there is the troop of beast kind who have come uh, hunting her. With uh, with their master Simon's sword, are sworn over or bonded magically to her as her loyal uh, bodyguard troop. So she, she travels this sort of strange, uh, bone thin uh, Appalachian waif with mismatched eyes, wearing an oversized army coat with this troop of fifty, um, and they're not uniform. It's not fifty minotaurs, you know. It's it's a woman with a cow's head, but then it's a guy with you know three legs, uh, and they're all they're all capered legs, and it's a guy with you know uh, with what with scorpion uh, claws or whatever. That's it's um, it's chaotic, uh, and uh, yeah, so she makes quite an impression. So there's that troop that's on Sarah's side, uh, and there are others who um, who we meet initially as wild animals, but who various ways uh, sort of become more people, rise above just being uh, merely animal. Yeah, and a lot of that's because of just encountering Sarah, who is a, who's a 
a force in this world. So tell us about Sarah a little bit. Um, she's our, our main character. There's a lot of characters in this book, Dave, <laughs> but um, she's she's pretty much the center of things. Um, she's a girl from from the Appalachians, and she's she's got a cussed personality. Tell us a little bit about her. Yeah. She's very strong. Yeah, it's you know I, this. I, I was not trying to write a so-called strong female character. Um, I was. I think most of the characters I write on some level are a version of me, and I think Sarah is a version of me, um, a kind of version of me. So she, um, as book one opens, Sarah is um, believes herself to be the illegitimate daughter of uh, the Calhoun family elector. So one of the uh, a military veteran, a hero, kind of a kind of a man much feared for his military exploits in the in the neighborhood, uh, neighborhood being Nashville, um, and uh, and she learns that that's not really the whole story. The day that she takes the plan down to sell the family tobacco crop at the fair, and Imperial Army officers try to kidnap her, and um, in the course of this, she discovers that she is the uh, secret daughter of the dead empress uh, and of the strange military hero magician king of Cahokia, Kyrus Eleutherius and, and, and Hannah Penn, the empress, uh, and that uh, she's been hidden from birth <clears throat> and that she has siblings and that, uh, and that her, her uncle, the emperor Thomas, has just discovered her existence uh, in, in, the, in the course of torturing her mother to death, actually, uh, and uh, has uh, sees her as a threat to his wealth and power and wants to have her killed. So uh, Sarah, in terms of personality, is um, smart, just, just smart as hell. And um, she uh, is paranoid and uh, she's xenophobic. And she she grows up uh, sort of the older sister figure to uh, to the, the young her generation in in, in, in the clan in a very clannish society. Uh, she's she's charismatic. She's decisive. She's a natural leader. She's uh, she's also deeply loyal um, to those who she uh, whom she sees as uh, uh, as her own. Uh, and she's grown up thinking of herself as a. You know, as the, as the elector's daughter and as a, as a natural hexer, and then uh, as her past sort of starts to break open and become revealed to her, she sets out on her journey, which is to recover her father's throne and to find and rescue her two siblings. And uh, and part of that journey for her also involves learning more about her mother and father, and it also involves becoming uh, master of her talents, which which turns out to mean she's better than just a a hexer, someone who says, you know, certain nursery rhymes and throws in an egg yolk and some cat hair and can accomplish some effects, uh, or, you know, can uh, put stump water uh, on, on your wart. Uh, she has way more talent than that. Um, and and uh, so she's developing into a pretty powerful magician uh, along the way, uh, as well as, um, as having an, an unusual, a natural gift uh, as a seer. Um, so the picture, the picture, Dan Dos Santos is a genius. Uh, his stuff is, is amazing. Um, the, he likes to draw Sarah with like red shooting out her eye, which is, which is 
which is which is great, which shows people that there's something about her eye. It's not a literal representation of what happens in the book. She doesn't shoot beams at her eye. She has gifts of vision, and her gift comes from ultimately her conception, which is which is magical, which is uh, which is abnormal. Um, her father, uh, when uh, killed, when dying, uh, uh, had uh, took three acorns and uh, dipped them in his own blood and sent them with his loyal servants back to his wife. She ate the acorns and conceived three children, all of whom had uh, distinctive appearances. And uh, and Sarah had an eye that would never open. And it was it's a blight. You meet her in the first page of book one, and she's she's homeless. She stays homeless. By the way, this is not a, this is not trick homeliness. Where in fact everyone is in love with her. Sarah is physically unattractive. And um, but at the beginning, her eye is swollen shut and the leaking pus and sort of you know red and inflamed and horrifying. Uh, at a certain point, um, well, we're giving away spoilers. So okay, so in. Uh, about a third of the way into book one, she's in a physical fight. She gets knocked on the head, and uh, and an object is is knocked out of that eye socket, and it turns out to be an acorn. And it's the acorn. It's it's the acorn, uh, and uh, that um, uh, that uh, emergence of the acorn, the removal of that acorn, opening that eye reveals that that eye has gifts of vision, uh, gifts of sight. Just She sees people's aura. She's very uh, talented at, at, at magics that allow her to see great distances. Yeah, and she can tell if people are telling fibs, too, pretty well. Can't lie to Sarah. You can't hide your emotions from Sarah. Yeah, so she's, it's pretty good. It's a pretty good gift. <laughs> yeah, and that's why we call the first book Witchy Eye. <laughs> that's... Exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, um, yeah, so so uh, really the arc, I was uh, having a really good conversation with somebody about these stories just the other day, and, and sort of the arc of Sarah in those three books as she goes from being kind of, you know, uh, Hellcat to Queen is sort of the, the arc of the first three, and along the way, you know, many other things. Yeah, and she kind of stays a Hellcat and evolves into a queen, <laughs> which is the fun of the book, is that at any moment the old Sarah can come back. And, and uh, I love it when she tells the eunuch that uh, that if he doesn't behave himself, she's going to make his balls grow back. <laughs> That's a wonderful scene. He doesn't want that. <laughs> yeah, I like that too. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of situational humor in the books that like that that I that that really um, that you have that knowing and feeling the magic makes the 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 humor work as well and the and such. So uh, so Sarah's in Cahokia. Cahokia at the end of Witchy Winter, she's surrounded the thing with this uh, this wall. But she is under siege by these bad guys, and they are basically—it's the Ohio Company, but they're—they're they're under the control of her uncle Thomas Penn back in Philadelphia, who's very, very evil. Yeah. Talk about the bad guys a little bit, and the necromancer that shows up, and et cetera. That's. Yeah. So, um, so there, there are several kinds of forces that are, or there are lots of forces that are arrayed against her, right, at various levels. 
Um, if we sort of skip over some of the people who are merely rivals and who even eventually may become allies, you know, your sort of two great poles of opposition to her are uh, in the East um, uh, and, and in the West. And in the West, I've already talked about Simon Sword uh, and, and ultimately sort of the long arc of the story uh, is going to have to be about dealing with Simon Sword and uh, and transitioning back to a, a peaceful manifestation to Peter Plowshare. Um, in the East, though, what you've got is her uncle, and her uncle is corrupted and doesn't know it. He he wants to accomplish good things, and we see benevolent sides of him. He wants to he wants to care for people. In fact, really, on some level, what he uh, he he's sort of a frustrated Superman. He sees himself as the person who who can and should solve problems, and he's very, he's angry when the electors won't cooperate. Um, and he's angry when uh, people, when his father chooses his sister rather than him to be the landholder, and then she gets elected uh, as the empress. Um, and, uh, and in that anger uh, and that pride, uh, he's been corrupted by, by an older uh, force, uh, which is the necromancer Oliver Cromwell. And uh, so Cromwell in, um, in the real world, you know, uh, Cromwell's an important figure, and we tend to think about him and talk about him in history in terms of being a, a small-D Democrat or a small-R Republican. In other words, he's somebody who expanded the franchise and, uh, you know, moved, moved us you know, Magna Carta it was his first step, and now we move, we have this with this uh, uh, the the interregnum, and this moves us closer towards modern you know parliamentary democracy, um, and that's a way to see him. But if you think about Oliver Cromwell in terms of the Stuart dynasty's um, ideology of the divine right of kings, that is to say, you know, the king is. It's, this is really kind of an old Davidic uh, monarchy kind of idea. The king is God's representative. He's the closest thing you're going to get to God on earth. It's not the priest, it's the king. And uh, and the king's right is, is sacred. It's not a matter of private property rights. He's, God has made him king. Um, and in that light, then Oliver Cromwell becomes just something very different, right? He becomes a cosmic figure, Um he becomes somebody who's willing to raise his hand against God's anointed and strike him down. And that's, that's the Oliver Cromwell of these stories. Uh, and it, it's someone who uh, Cromwell is dissatisfied with what he sees as God's plan. Specifically, he's dissatisfied with death. And his, his goal is to strike down death and form an undying republic of all humankind. Uh, and uh, Cromwell in the 1600s um, creates a, a, a republic, uh, of a, an eternal republic of Britain. Um, he's got a with with armies of undead and also armies of, of constructs. His, I, I like I like historical jokes, and he has a he has a new model army, uh, which which in the real world meant a. Uh, an army on a new model, but in the in the Wichii setting, there's actually he has big golems, new models who are fighting for him. So uh, he's defeated in 
the uh, in the setting by uh, John Churchill, um, who in the real world was the first Duke of Marlborough, who's the great antagonist, the the leader of the Allied armies against the Sun King Louis the Fourteenth. Uh, and Winston Churchill's grandfather by about, I want to say, 13 or 14 generations. Um, so in the, in the, uh, in the books, um, he, uh, he defeats Cromwell and then comes to the throne as lucky King John II. Because, of course, there's, there's only ever been one King John in England. There have been Henrys and there have been Georges uh, in large numbers and multiple Richards. One King John because the first was regarded as being so so. Uh, blighted that you could it was unlucky to name a King John thereafter. So in this setting, John Churchill reverses that that sort of curse. He's lucky King John, and uh, and he does so in a big act uh, act of uh, a nationwide act of apotropaic magic, uh, defensive magic, which is he he unbaptizes everybody, uh, converts everyone back to paganism, which stops Cromwell from using baptismal rules to kill them. So, uh, so England is is this sort of neo-pagan, kind of reconstructed paganism uh, in the setting. Cromwell is defeated uh, in the 17th century. Does never goes away. Sticks his head back up in the 18th. Uh, the 45 uprising is in this setting is Cromwellian. It's not the Stuart family trying to come back uh, on its own. It is uh, it is Cromwell. Um, uh, that is that is moving them, um, but uh, but he has also he or a part of him have moved to the new world, and one of the things we see in book three is that he's done so really along with William Penn, uh, and so the Penn family and their great landholding have had this uh, this corruption with them uh, within them from the beginning, and uh, and uh, Cromwell's interest in Sarah as he's trying to. He wants to end death. Uh, he wants to bring about immortality for all humans, and uh, and and it's going to require enormous sacrifice to do so. And what he wants to do is is kill all of Sarah's people. And really, what he wants to do is kill their goddess and use the use the energy that is within them to fuel this act of sort of uh, sorceress engineering to uh, bring about the end of death. So uh, Sarah's uncle is is uh, manipulated by him uh, from the very beginning, and uh, therefore all of his, all of his wealth uh, and his political power turns to trying to uh, trying to crush her, trying to round up all of the firstborn, and ultimately uh, trying to kill them. Yeah, and the and and Sarah is sore beset during uh, during Richie Kingdom by. Uh, these these forces that have uh named robert hook who is sort of brought who's the keeper of the cromwell spirit at the, at the moment i guess you could yeah cromwell's kind of an evil spirit that jumps around from person to person in the in the in the sense i guess he's not really embodied in his own body yeah he becomes embodied one of the one of the fun uh so at a certain point, uh, the uh, the emperor uses to communicate with his. Um, so the director, uh, you, you made a good clarifying point earlier. The imperial army is not really into play yet because the emperor's ability to raise and, and fund armies is his hands are tied by the electors, and so he's in the process of using the crises generated by Simon's sword as well as 
fake crises, non non real fake news. I was writing about fake news back in like 2010 when I wrote the story. See, um, ginned up crises to cause the electors to allow him to raise taxes, to raise to raise an army. But in the meantime, uh, he's doing everything he can, and so he's also the 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 shareholder, the owner of the Imperial Ohio Company, which has itself a lot of wealth, and he's uh, he's. Uh, using that wealth and freeing men from prison and doing things to send these sort of militias um, to uh, besiege Sarah. We, st- we start to see the real army proper in the form of artillery in Book 3, but mostly we're still dealing with kind of um, his irregulars as he's marshalling other kinds of forces. Yeah. I love the uh, name of the, the leader of the Imperial Ohio Company, which is notwithstanding Schmidt, who's a woman. <laughs> She's great. Yeah. So what was the name? So so I was reading about Puritan naming patterns, and it was a very common practice. You know, you get all these Puritan names like Faith and Hope and Charity, right? And you still have people who have those kinds of names. But, but, but uh, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, you had, you had even more colorful ones like, you know, Armor of God or Trust in God, right? Um, well, sometimes. Or... Uh... Capability Brown, the uh... yeah, yeah, very good. Uh, some people chose these deliberately to communicate to their to their children. Sometimes people wanted to give their child a biblical name and and didn't know what to to do. They didn't have a they couldn't think of one or couldn't decide one, and so they would literally flip open, uh, you know, their 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 Bible and put a finger down, and that's that's the word, right? This is a very old, extremely simple way to to cast lots. It's just point at verses in the Bible and and then try to interpret them. Um, and so I, I I can't remember what I was reading, but there was a the real world. I think six seventeenth seventeenth century Puritan in Massachusetts, whose name I think I'm getting this right was absolutely Johnson, and and that's the reason why because they his parents had flipped open the Bible and they put their finger on the word absolutely. <laughs> so, <laughs> So I said, "This is great. What else, what other crazy names could you land on?" <laughs> she and Thomas communicates with her. Tell us about these very creepy partlet quintuplets. Um, that's one of the yeah. So I was uh, so actually I was very good. So I almost walked down this uh, this road a minute ago because you were talking about uh, Cromwell's embodiment. Um, yeah, Cromwell is, is 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 not physically on the scene. He appears as a vision uh, first. He's 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 gaining power. Um, but at the beginning of the story, he's he's not physical and, and only rarely shows up in, in vision. Um, but in book three, he he takes bodies, and the uh, the reason is that uh, so Thomas and he has his director of the Imperial Ohio Company's a woman named Notwithstanding Schmidt, uh, and to communicate in real time, uh, there's this set of quintuplets. Uh, who uh, the the uh, the the, um, the Imperial College of Magic at Philadelphia sends uh, to Thomas because they they the children were identified at birth as having a shared soul as being connected uh, and so the colleges raise them so uh, they become a kind of like a telephone because what they see at one end uh, they mimic out the other end and so you you put some of them in Philadelphia and some of them out in Cahokia. And they and they and they can pass on messages. So uh, the way it works from Schmidt's point of view is, you know, she's got these three 
sort of young teenage boys, uh, and they speak in unison, and they're imitating whoever their other siblings are seeing on the other end, so kind of impersonations of the voices. Um, and uh, it does not go well for the Parlet quintuplets. Um, so uh, w- one of them, well, ultimately two, we're, we're giving spoilers, uh, have their bodies occupied by Cromwell. So Cromwell, this is this is what Hook does: is 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 uh, bring Cromwell into a physical body in an attempt for um, by Hook and Cromwell to enter the sanctuary in Cahokia and kill uh, and and kill the goddess. Um, and uh, so he gains a body, and then when 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 that body is destroyed, uh, he moves into one of the other parlots. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun writing those those guys. Yeah, and they're uh, they, they all look alike, and they talk in unison, and they they just seem like something that stepped out of a horror movie. <laughs> so and they get, and when one of them gets possessed or uh, or something, the other ones, um, uh, it's it's uh, it's a terrible thing. Children in danger and children uh, being used in horror horrific ways, but it's uh, it's very effective as a scary thing in the book. Um, we should probably talk a little bit about um, New Orleans and what's going on at the on the southern end of things because that's uh, that's going to determine Cahokia's uh, fate as well and Sarah's. Yeah, one of my favorite scenes is um, I have a lot of favorite scenes. You know, if, if a book gives me sort of five or six good scenes where I feel like, oh yeah, then I feel like okay, this book this book justified its existence. Um, and the, and New Orleans that that story builds up to one of those scenes. So uh, in New Orleans, you know what's happened in book one is the the chevalier or the chevalier, if you're French, uh, who is uh, one of the two electors of uh, of Louisiana, uh, is um, he's the he's the secular he's he's the knight he's the the nobleman who uh, who runs the city and. Uh, he, um, in book one, uh, he orders the killing uh, of the uh, city's bishop, and uh, the bishop is a, a genuinely—he's—he's he's the most unambiguously saintly person in the whole in the whole story, all the way through. He's the genuinely good man, and uh, the chevalier killed him, and uh, and he has two sons. He he not the chevalier. He the the bishop has two sons, and so the story follows then in books two and three follows. The sons and um what happens in book two uh, which which has to happen this is this is necessary this is a good story logic is of those two sons the, the one who becomes bishop and replaces his father is the bad son and uh etienne uku is, is one of my favorite characters he's a he's a gangster and uh he's uh he can be really ruthless um and there are there are scenes in in book three that remind us that he can uh he's He's not, he's not a nice guy, um, but uh, he's also a voodoo hungan, uh, and uh, he gets himself made bishop. And, and the reason he does is because uh, when on uh, when she was dying, when his mother was on her deathbed, he he swore to her that he would take care of his father. Uh, and so he's been a kind of as this saintly man has been making his way around New Orleans, his son has been sort of shadowing him and, and taking care of him a little bit. And now that he, he's dead, uh, Etienne is, is hell-bent on, on revenge. So 
um, so in book three, uh, so what's happened is uh, there's, a, there's a struggle between Etienne the Chevalier. Etienne basically encourages and tax people to stop paying money. The Chevalier has the, the kind of classic uh, problem of landed nobility, which is a lot of land, a lot of theoretical wealth, but no cash flow. There's several people have this problem in, this, in these stories. And when Etienne cuts off his sources of cash, ultimately the uh and and then also encourages a, an actual military revolt among some of the now unpaid gendarmerie um the uh the chevalier turns to spain and so the sort of the climactic sequence uh spain meaning new spain mexico city and uh some of the climactic sequence in book 3 is when the chevalier having abandoned his palace uh, this is this is the required sign of commitment from him by the Spanish. You got to you got to march. We're going to send armies to you, but you're going to march with us. You got to come out and join the armies, or, or we're not doing this. And so he he leaves New Orleans to ride in at the head of these armies, um, and uh, and Etienne meets him at the bridge at Bishop's Bridge over the Mississippi River to to uh, to stop him. And uh, one of my favorite scenes. I've been planting some of these. Uh, seeds from from early on. You hear references to to basilisks in book one, without ever seeing them. There's a joke about eating basilisk étouffée. Uh, and in book two, you kind of you know you worry about them when you're in the mud, you know, but you never see them. Uh, and then uh, in the climax, Etienne is connected with Sarah. And it's through her power of vision and along the ley line of the Mississippi River. She needs his help. She's trying to puzzle. She doesn't understand it. And she's under siege hook within the sanctuary of the goddess. And connects with Etienne. And, and she owes him. Uh, and she repays the favor by causing the basilisks of the lower Mississippi to rise. This is my favorite scene. This is the result of this kind of interaction, this bargain is then as Etienne is standing alone on the bridge facing this immense Spanish army, flying serpents come over the bridge, uh, like out of the book of numbers, uh, and are stinging these, you know, Aztec berserkers and, and, uh, you know, uh, Japanese mercenaries and everyone else in this big motley Spanish army. Uh, and he holds the bridge by, by the, by Sarah, by virtue of Sarah repaying his debt to him. Right. Uh, and by the rising of the basilisks. There's spoilers. I spoiled all three books right there. That's the, all the way to book three. <laughs> well, that is, it, it's cool. But, I mean, the whole point of, uh, of Wedgie Kingdom is that Sarah's under siege and she has to get help and she has to figure out herself how to connect with this goddess to, to fight off, uh, the, you know, because Cromwell's uh, uh, eternity is not, is an eternity that would be hellish, you know, the zombie world, right? I mean, it's not going to be a nice place. So we don't want that. He's, he's Sauron. So. That's exactly right. There's, there's, there are competing models here of, um, of eternal life. So, there's a, so in, in Egyptian, there are actually two ways to say forever. Okay, we'll get back to hieroglyphics again. This, this is, we're having like an Egyptology discussion. Um, there are two ways to say forever uh, in Egyptian. Um, 
uh, classical Egyptian, not not Egyptian Arabic, uh, and they usually go together. and And they're they're often translated. They used to be translated forever and ever in the old translations, and now they're usually translated uh, enduringly and repeatedly. Um, but they're the words are jet and neche, and uh, one means something that never ends, and the other means something that comes back over and over and over and over again. And um, the uh, and so these are this is this is one way to think about the sort of competing visions of it, of, of forever. Is Cromwell? Cromwell is sort of uh, in a way he's kind of an American. He's really obsessed. He wants to hold on to the, the status quo. Right? Uh, forever means not dying. We must not die. Eternal youth. Um, whereas uh, the, the 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 life power. Uh, of the goddess is all is cyclical. It's all about going and coming again, and things that that reappear uh, in uh, in different manifestations and, and never truly die, but always necessarily die for a time. Um, and so that on a that's a that's that sort of without like lecturing on it. That's that's one of the sort of underlying things going on in the stories. One of the things that I just wanted to bring in uh, and maybe have you talk about a little is, is Sarah's really cool magical object that she gets, which is the heron plow. Um, and it, I, I love that it like digs into the mound and comes out the side. And uh, what, what is this thing? And what is it? What's it there for? Where'd it come from? <laughs> yeah. So each sign of the, each side of the, um, each side of the Heron King has an artifact. So there is a plow and there's a sword. Uh, and part of the compact that Sarah's ancestors had made with Simon, with, with Peter Plasher, was that they were holding the sword. Because holding the sword would limit the power of Simon's sword when he came again. And one of the things that Sarah does to solve her problem at book one uh, is give Simon's sword the sword. And she knows it's a bad idea, but she doesn't have a choice. It's her best move, but that empowers him. Uh, and uh, but in return, she does get the plow, which she has no use for. He doesn't care for it. So, so what is it? Well, we see it. Uh, it, it. It's fundamentally. It's now. Now it does. She gets it to do other little fun things. Um, but fundamentally, it is the power of of ordering space. It's the power of creating an ordered cosmos in an object. So the uh, there, there's a line in middle of book two or so where they're talking about you know what what is Eden and all the crazy things people have thought Eden was or wasn't and and one 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 character says you know some people even think that Eden is wherever uh, is, is wherever the land is plowed um, so and and this you know back to the ancient Romans when they created a, a, a sanctuary they they plowed it the first thing you do is you plow a square around it. Uh, so uh, her her first real use of it is uh, that she restores the tree wall to life. And you said this earlier, Cahokia is ringed by a wall of giant trees. Uh, when Sarah sees them, they are dead. They're clearly not meant to be dead. They she can see lines. Uh, of of uh, like a spiral writing on them, um, the, in 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 energy that are invisible to others, and uh, and and the tree has been killed. Something is wrong, and so 
one of the things that happens in the climax of books two is she uses the the plow first to um, to create uh, a a connection with the goddess on a particular site, uh, and then to she uses the plow to uh, restore the the wall of Cahokia. And we were talking about beast kind and sort of how how some of the beast kind become some of them never rise above being animals and they die wild rabbit animals. Some of them do. And one of the ways that some of them seem to is um, in the climax of book two is as Cahokia is being invaded from the West. I mean, invaded is a fancy word. There's a there's a pack of wild half man half animal things overrunning it from the West side. Uh, she um, with the help of the goddess, pushes the plow around through the tree wall. And and encircling the city, first of all, it revivifies the tree wall, um, which which saves the city from the siege at that moment. But the other thing that it does is that the beast kind who are who are standing within it um, cease to rampage. They become calm. They're restored to to mental order and uh and sort of wander wander away, you know, sheepish or uh, un- unsure of what they were doing or why, or why they were here. So, um, yeah, she does other stuff with it, too, sort of in a, on a similar level with, when uh, when her brother Nathaniel is being, uh, is being crushed by Robert Hook, has this spell that grinds up people's souls. It's, it's a smaller, portable version of what Cromwell wants to do with the goddess and Sarah's people. She's a, it's a sort of a vortex that sucks in people's souls and uh, and destroys them. Uh, and her brother Nathaniel is being, uh, is being sucked into it and she sends the plow uh, through space, through the two halves of a broken writing tablet. And then encircling, encircles Nathaniel and, and the plow uh, restores order around him and, and and snaps him out of the out of the vortex. So it's a lot of fun thinking about kind of what um, you know. Magic swords is such a much more common kind of artifact in a in a fantasy story. It's a lot of fun thinking about well, what does a magic plow do? You know, but I think that it actually it's a pretty doggone useful thing for a for a queen. Yeah, yeah, it's very it's very cool. And um, finally, I guess uh, a lot of the story revolves around the people that will, that are Sarah's allies trying to figure out that they like her and that she's not really their enemy. Of and and um, the people like Al's Bieta, um, Maltris Corin, Bill Lee, who's a great character. Um, the, he's sort of a gentleman. The, Right, uh, English gentleman. Or uh, tell us about some of them and, and Tarami, who walks around on his knees <laughs> at the beginning of the book, at least. Yeah, yeah. So um, from book two, uh, so uh, so so Bill Bill of all of those comes quickly to trust Sarah because he was he was the head of her father's personal bodyguard, and he was one of the three people who. Um, who took the three siblings when they were born and hit them. He hit her brother Nathaniel. But but the others are all characters who uh, initially oppose her and sort of come around. Um, Albieta in the first place uh, is, is, a, is a cousin, and um, Albieta uh, mm-hmm. wants to 
wants to be queen. Um, and in fact, we we meet her initially, and she's sort of she's lying in in ambush for uh, Sarah to try and uh, she believes Sarah has found the Cahokian regalia, which is true, and she wants to uh, lie in ambush and, and take it from her. Um, and uh, uh, so Sarah ultimately brings her around uh, by uh, you know various kinds of acts of. Um, Generosity on Sarah's part, uh, or, or voluntary risk taking or exposure on Sarah's part. Um, Maltris Corinne is the uh, he's the regent. He's running the city. He does not want to. Uh, repeatedly, he says, "I want to go home to my blackberries, uh, and uh, I'm not interested in being here." Which actually makes him just exactly the right guy to be running the city. You don't want right. You don't want the guy who this is the, this is exactly his aspiration is to to have all the power. He does not want it. Uh, he is, uh, uh, he's a good man, but as a good man, he's trying his best to, um, um, sort out the competing powers in the city. And, and they're trying to, to get their goddess to respond and choose a new King. The throne's been vacant. They need someone to really be, really be the leader. Uh, and, uh, Sarah comes in as an interloper. So his responses initially are all, um, uh, defensive and against Sarah, uh, in fact, arresting her uh, at one point. Um, and the thing that ultimately turns uh, those, those characters around uh, is, uh, is their experience together with Sarah and seeing that, uh, that Sarah is able to contact the goddess. And whether it's, whether it's fate or circumstance or, or, or whatever, the goddess responds positively and and and, and chooses Sarah um, as her beloved. So there's a there's a lot of biblical language in here. Um, Sarah is chosen as the beloved of the goddess, and those who were sincere in in trying to do what they thought the goddess wanted, while yes, at the same time satisfying personal ambition. Um, some of those turn. Um, one of the one of the other uh, characters you mentioned is a is a fun one, uh, Zadok Tarami. Yeah, he's a so he again is deeply sincere, but he also thinks that Sarah is uh, is doing something deeply wicked. Um, and we see him at the very beginning of the of book three, and he is returned uh, from a uh, long pilgrimage on his knees. He's walked seven hundred miles on his knees uh, all the way across the Ohio, um, emulating following the uh, it's a pilgrim trail, a known defined pilgrim trail, uh, which is understood to retrace the steps of the prophet king who brought the people here uh, thousands of years ago in the first place when when their, their land in the old world sank beneath the waves. And so uh, so he's been in a pilgrimage uh, seeking advice, not from the goddess, because he actually regards her as a demon and a curse. And he's the, he's the foremost voice in this book for the view that this is not a goddess at all. It is an evil power. Uh, uh, but but from God, he's a, he's a Christian cleric, and um, and he is a thorn in Sarah's side. Uh, and one of the one of the things that happens is um, the uh, so Maltris Corinne is one of the senior Freemasons of the city uh, in a in a uh, in a lodge that is unique to the firstborn. Um, and uh, and uh, we see that a couple times, 
But where that really becomes sort of important is uh, as people are, as, as, as heroes are dying to defend the city, there is a fight over how to bury them. And, uh, and it's sort of the, it's, it's, a, it's the emblem of the religious conflict that's going on where there's some people are, are uh, some fairly traditional Christians and some people have this, the religion of their people of the, historically, which is, which is this goddess, and, and, and they're at odds within. And so Maltres Corinne, who is the regent, uh, or who after Sarah sort of begins to take command, he really acts as her vizier, kind of right-hand man or administrator. Um, he's the one who, um, who mediates this, and he does it by uh, basically creating a, a, a state liturgy by using his, his Freemasonry as a non-denominational alternative, right? But we're going to bury these people, uh, and we're going to do it this way. And, and I'll invite uh, both sides to come. You can both participate in this, uh, and, uh, but, it's, but it's my right, and this is going to be the end of it. We're not going to fight. And so, uh, it's, you know, it's a little um, – uh, that's part of Tarami. So, A, that's sort of one of the subplots is, how, is resolving this religious conflict. And then for Tarami in particular – uh, it resolves um, uh, by his uh, being witness to miraculous events, and then uh, in, in the joint defense of the city, where he has to he has to decide whose side is he really on, uh, and uh, come to the defense of people who whom he has regarded as uh, pagan and deluded. Um, yeah, so uh, so a lot of the sort of theme there is is kind of joint enterprise, and you know joint. Joint danger and joint undertaking uh, is uh, is a way for these characters often to find their way past their differences um, to be able to uh, to cooperate. Yeah, and there's one character that um, sort of is uh, you can take a step back when he, whenever he's on deck, uh, which is Lumen, the uh, hedge wizard, and he, he's sort of watching it. And trying to figure everything out from from a nonpartisan perspective, as it were, and uh, he eventually becomes an ally. But uh, but at first, he's he doesn't know what's going on exactly. Yeah, Lumen's story is all about. Um, it's really all about his personal kind of quest, and we hear more about his youth in book three. Uh, and he's basically thrown off the family farm. Um, he's, 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 was never robust enough to, uh, be a good farmer. Uh, he, uh, was sent to go study with the schoolmaster, discovered the schoolmaster, uh, was also a, a rodsman, knew how to douse for water and stuff, learned that instead, um, of whatever he was supposed to learn, uh, and his, and his dad threw him out. And so Lumen is, is, uh, as we meet in the beginning is, is, uh, is a man without a place. And what he really, really wants is a is a place, and he understands that in terms of um, in terms of, uh, of, of of an initiation, of being an insider, of being at the center, and and that has made him a uh, a thief, um, a thief of magic and a thief of of traditions, and he's gone around uh, sort of learning 
uh, arts by uh, sometimes being trained, some, but sometimes by stealing them. There's a, there's a story of a backstory in, in Book One where he talks about um, he finds a, a blind German Brauker, a German magician. He, he wants to he wants to learn his magic, but the guy will only his tradition. The guy says no. He says in my tradition, I only teach my own family. And by the way, we alternate uh, sexes, so I'm going to teach. Uh, you know, a, a woman relative. And so Lumen goes and hires his niece, who is not at all interested in this, to sit there and listen to lessons from her blind uh, uncle while uh, Lumen takes notes quietly in the corner. <laughs> so so, so he's he's all about stealing, uh, stealing information, stealing his presence, uh, stealing his way into places and knowledge that he did, that is, that are not opened to him. Um, and so his, you know, his his kind of moment of decision at the end of book three is is uh, is really all about him maybe having an opportunity to to steal his way into the 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 most centered place, the greatest knowledge of his life, <clears throat> and then acknowledging that he has not been invited and and stepping away. Um, but yeah, in the process yeah. of all of that, he he goes from being the company magician. To uh, being someone who is on who's on Sarah's side, and he's he's very empirical too, which I like about. He's he's really the character that's most like us modern folk, in his way, I would say. Um, and he's a, a lens we can interpret all this through um, when we're when we get a little bit be, into the uh, into the weeds with the uh, with the Arcana showing up and <laughs> doing stuff. The book is uh, Witchy Kingdom by D.J. Butler. Um, it's now at booksellers everywhere, and it is uh, the sequel to Witchy Eye and Witchy Winter. It's part of the uh, Witchy Wars saga. Uh, Dave, thanks so much for, for being with us once again. Thanks very much for having me, Tony. I appreciate it. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Chapter 36 you now, a warrior like you, could make a lot of money, Risalda, Gutch told Jagdish one afternoon. With the folks I know, and the things they get into, they're always looking for somebody handy with a blade. 
People are willing to pay good notes for magic bits off the Inquisition's books, but such a trade tends to attract shifty types. A right honourable fellow like you, who's solid in a fight, could command a decent wage. Jagdish had mostly ignored the big worker over their long journey, but Gutch rarely shut up. Lots of honourable fellows in the criminal smuggling underworld, then. We're lousy with them. Gotch had a loud bark of a laugh. The first few times he'd done it, the noise had startled his horse so badly it had nearly bucked him off. But after several days, his poor bedraggled mount had either gotten used to it or gone deaf. Keep in mind, honor is a relative term, Risalda. No, it isn't, Jagdish said. They were approaching another fork in the road. One path would take them toward Thau, the other toward Sarnabat. Assuming that Gutch hadn't been lying to him the whole time, and Gruvidal had been moving south. It wasn't like following a trail, as they weren't on the same path, but more like following a compass with a twitchy needle. Which way now? Gutch got off his horse, walked to the middle of the road, and spread his arms, slowly turning. Jagdish figured that whole twirling bit was for show, and Gutch looked like a fool for nothing. He had originally started doing that as an excuse to get Jagdish to remove his manacles and chains. After having to stop and reorient himself several times a day, Jagdish had just given up and started leaving the chains off while they traveled. It was probably just a matter of time before the prisoner tried to escape. Jagdish tried to prod him into getting the show over with, Surely you can't be the only person in lock with the gift of tracking magic. Perhaps you could refer me to one who works quicker. My talent is extremely rare. If it were a common gift, I wouldn't have been given absurdly heavy bags of notes to help illegal magic smugglers gather the stuff. There are always dead demon bits washed up on shore, or old fragments of black steel to be stole... Uh, found... There's quite a good trade in such things that are off paper for those who want to use magic without the Inquisition sticking their masks in your business. I'll tell you, it was enough money to tempt even a brilliant artist such as myself from honest labour into terrible criminal misdeeds. Now please, Risalda, I'm trying to concentrate. After a few minutes of spinning about and humming, Guts began to speak. I can feel it. The magic calls to me. The terrible black steel craft alters the very fabric of the world around it. Gutch put one meaty hand on his forehead and grimaced. But Jagdish the warrior would never know this without the faithful service of humble Gutch, that mighty Angruvidal is. Gutch stopped spinning and pointed. That direction. He opened his eyes, found the sun, and confirmed it. South. At least he was consistent. Thou, then. Jagdish was beginning to suspect that his prisoner was full of fish. But at least he hadn't pointed them towards Sarnabad. Because of the recent raids back and forth, if they discovered Jagdish was from Vidal, he'd likely be taken hostage. Then he'd get to experience prison life from both sides. Only nobody in Vidal would pay a ransom to have Jagdish returned. You'd better not be putting me on. The big man climbed back on his horse. 
Of course not, Risalda. You have my solemn word as a forge master. Well, temporarily retired forge master, at least, that I'd never lead you astray. I'll run off when I'm not looking. A murder me in my sleep. Jagdish mused. But Gutch hadn't fled yet. The big man talked non-stop the rest of the day as they rode through the forest, but Jagdish couldn't shake the feeling that he was going to try something. So a few hours later, when they'd stopped to camp for the night, Jagdish locked the manacles onto Gutch's wrists and looped the chain around a stout tree. This is hardly a comfortable position to sleep. If I don't get enough rest, it might affect my tracking ability tomorrow. If my keen magical senses are worn out, I might accidentally lead us astray, Rizalda. We could lose Angruvidal. Uh-huh, Jagdish said as he put together the campfire. What if I need to piss? Hold it until morning. What if, in the middle of the night, we get attacked by wolves or bandits? Try not to wake me. Oh. Gutch leaned against his tree. Bark makes a terrible pillow. Jagdish got a strong fire going. They'd been climbing all day, and nights were cold in the foothills. Satisfied that it wasn't going to go out, Jagdish began preparing their food. Thankfully, Gutch was silent for a few minutes while he did it. Once he had the kettle on, Jagdish took out his pocket watch and wound the spring. The marvelous little thing was still working, long after its previous owner had been murdered by wizards. He felt it whir and tick in his hand, and regretted not leaving it with Pakpa. He missed her already. It was an embarrassment for a bride to have to go back to her parents' house. But his name had collected so many embarrassments at this point that what was one more? They may have been of different castes, but his loyal soldiers had promised to watch over Pakpa's family household while he was away, an act of such unselfish kindness that it had left Jagdish humbled. Do you mind if I ask you something, Risalda? Me minding hasn't stopped you once yet. What? Jagdish muttered, but then Gutch was quiet. He looked over to see that the worker was studying him intently. There was a lot more intelligence behind those beady little eyes than the big man let on. What do you want to know? Why are you doing this? Jagdish assumed he wasn't talking about fixing supper. I have to. I've got nothing else. I noticed your wife see you off at the gates of the city. Hardy worker stock by the looks of her. Maybe we're distant cousins. But a beautiful girl and it was plain as day how she feels about you. Can't hardly call that nothing. We both know Ashok wasn't the one who attacked Cole's stream. I can't let that stand. And when you catch up to him, you're going to do what? Are you going to have him sign a testimony? I hereby swear I didn't murder everybody. Now, I'm no judge, but I figure they might be a little leery of taking him at his word. I'll think of something, Jagdish said. Do you think you can duel him and take his sword? Marcel had a crack in the wall. I got to watch how your sparring sessions went. If you think that's going to happen, you're delusional. Damn it, Gutch. I don't care about the sword. I care about the truth. My name has been dishonoured. That's... Jagdish sighed. You're not a warrior. 
You wouldn't understand. I'm a different caste, not a different species. I know what it means to have a name. That hung there for a while, as Gutch continued studying him. Perhaps. Jagdish looked back down at the pocket watch. You've seen this device? Yes, impressive little thing. While your caste spends its time hacking each other to bits, my caste improves our lives through labour and miraculous invention. You're welcome. I should have left it home. If I don't come back, I want my son to have it. Then return it to him. Only after I prove who really killed my men and my charges. They may have been prisoners, but they deserved better, and their safety was my responsibility. I will avenge them. I will kill these wizards. Then I'll return with my name and honor intact. A warrior is only worth his name. Gutch nodded thoughtfully. You actually believe all that stuff? Jagdish put the watch away. I have to. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Jugkowitz. And a wistful tune on flute and oboe ringing in the pre-apocalypse, where cars stop turning to the right and bumblebees continually chase people who have had LASIK surgery, plus thanks, praise, and plaudits to DJ Butler, author of Witchy Kingdom. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 